Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Thus Were Their Faces by Silvita Ocampo. This edition was translated from Spanish by Daniel Balderston. Thus Were Their Faces offers a comprehensive selection of the short fiction of Silvina Ocampo. Here are tales of doubles and imposters, angels and demons, a marble statue of a winged horse that speaks, a beautiful seer who writes the autobiography of her own death, a lapdog who records the dreams of an old woman, a suicidal romance, and much else that is incredible, mad, sublime, and delicious. And to discuss this collection, we are joined by Kim McNeil, who is leading an online project focused on the women of NYRB. Welcome, Kim. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to join you. I'm excited to talk about it. Us too. So firstly, we just wanted to ask a little bit about your NYRB Women 23 project. Kind of how did that begin? What gave you the idea for it? And how has it been going so far? It's been really fun so far. I think group reads in general are just a great way of connecting and sharing ideas and staying motivated on specific reading projects. In 2021, I had set up a group read of Manning's Balkan and Levant trilogies. And so we had done those. And then I also did a group read of Tale of of Genji. And then in 2022, I did a group read for Dorothy Richardson's 13 volume series pilgrimage. And it was really fun. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking at what I wanted to do for 2023, I was looking at my large stack of unread NYRB classics, (laughs) and most of which are by women. And I thought that would be maybe a fun way to approach that, that pile was to focus on the women of NYRB and kind of looked at spanning years and different geographies of those women and put a list together and put it out and it just got a really positive response. So so it's been really great so far. We've had a, a nice variety and there's been a lot of really great discussion and people share a lot of really fun tidbits. So it, it's been really cool. And I'm not like a huge tweeter, but I did try to tweet a little bit along with this book. And it does totally change the reading experience to do it with people virtually in this way. Yeah, I think it it expands your way of thinking, I think sometimes too, because everybody reads it through a different lens and kind of dials in on different aspects of the story. And so I find that even the things people share are just wildly different. Like some people really go to the geography of a book and some people to the art of the book or characteristics of the people and the history of whatever, you know, is being discussed in the book. And so it really makes for, I think, really rewarding reading. Mm -hmm. And are you also going to do it next year? I feel like I've seen whisperings of a 2024 continuation. Yeah, I think so. I have a whole bunch still in my stack that are unread. And I've been getting a lot of direct messages from people. And And then there's just been a little bit of chatter on Twitter, too, about continuing it. So I think it seems like a really good way to continue working, you know, my way through the stack. And there there's just such a variety of authors that they publish. And I feel like NYRB does such a wonderful job of curating who they publish. I'd like to see a little bit, I think, more diversity and covering maybe a few more continents and But I think it's, I think overall, it's just a really reliable source of reading materials. I think it's really interesting as a whole. Yeah, for sure. Do you think it would be women again? Or do you think you would try to go with a different angle? No, I think I'll stick with women because that's what the majority of my collection is. Gotcha. And I think it's really interesting how the different books work off of each other. There are a lot of threads that run through either in the themes of the books or just in like the historical, like we read Iris Arrigo's diaries this year. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, we read Perenni's More Was Lost. And it was interesting to read some of these back to back and the stories, how they, they really enhance each other of just 
different geographies, but same time period and different women's experiences. So yeah, I think I'll stick with the women of NYRB. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I feel it's been fun to follow. we have a similar feeling about our project and you, your project and ours is like very simpatico. But um, we see these connections between the books, reading them intentionally together that we probably wouldn't have seen had we just been casually coming to NYRBs. So that is a rewarding way of looking at it. And there is, there is variety, but there could also be more variety. So we share your feelings about that too. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I think next year we'll probably repeat, you know, do a couple of the same authors that we did this year, and then also focus on some of the writers that we didn't get to at all this year. So hopefully that'll be an interesting balance too. Yeah. Yeah. We're also talking about like when we need to kind of go back into authors. We've talked about doing another Townsend Warner or another Robert Walzer, which that little matchup got pretty heated. <laughs> last couple days it's been so fun to watch the brackets and um and see people's comments and responses <laughs> it's great yeah and if you do sylvia townsend warner you need to do the corner that held them it's fantastic it's my favorite warner so yeah highly recommend it i think it's, I think it's my too. favorite my favorite too yeah that that's like the difficult thing is like you you read these authors you love you want to go back and read more of them um, and give them their moment. But then you also are so excited about the other authors that you haven't got to. So it's like, what do we do next? I know, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, mm -hmm. let's talk about Sylvina Ocampo because she is the, uh, the star of today. She was born in 1903 to a wealthy family in Buenos Aires. She studied painting in Paris, but spent most of her life in the city of her birth. She was deeply ingrained in Buenos Aires' literary scene. Her sister, Victoria, founded the influential magazine Sir, which was also a publishing house, I think published her early, her early collections. She was part of this, this circle, which featured a lot of writing by Jorge Luis Borges, Aldo Fobioy Casares, who Ocampo married in 1940. Borges provides a preface to this collection, uh, and in addition to her short stories, Ocampo wrote tales for children, different volumes of poetry, uh, and was a translator, translated a lot of English classics into Spanish, like Emily Dickinson, Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Melville. And I think she's a good figure to talk about specifically with you, Kim, because she is so underappreciated, I think, both in Argentina and abroad. Uh, how do you see her fitting into this kind of tapestry of women's writers that you've read so far this year? She was actually one of my kind of introductions to discovering some of these lost women. City Light Books uh, republished or published two of her works that had never been published in English before. And one was Forgotten Journey, which is her first collection of short stories. It was a book of 28 stories. It was only 125 pages, so that all of the stories are really short. A couple of those stories are included in what we're going to be talking about today. And then there was another book that they published called The Promise, which is a really short novella. I think it's barely 100 pages. And it's about a woman on a transatlantic ship. She's fallen overboard and is adrift at sea. And she makes a promise to St. Rita that if she survives, she'll write her life story. And she kind of imagines what it is that she'll write about. And those two books, I remember when I first discovered them and started researching her, it opened up this world of authors in Argentina, like Nora Lang and a lot of contemporary writers um, like Mariana Enriquez and and when I kind of went down that path, I realized like how many women are out there in countries everywhere that they've, they've been translated. And those tr translations either have not been in print for a while or just not known about. And mm -hmm. so I started doing a lot more research. And, and that's kind of how I got involved in Twitter to begin with, too, because I put a tweet out there that I was reading women of this time period from around the world? And did people have any recommendations? And it just, the amount of response I got was incredible. And there were all these names that I just had never heard of before. And so I feel like, and that's kind of what then led me to the world of NYRB and some other small publishers. And there's just so many women out there that I feel like where were all these women during all my years of education? I 
we never we never read them. So that's why I started collecting all of the NYRB classics that are written by women just to explore some of these women that I had never read before. Wow, that's that's amazing how how long you've been on the Ocampo train. Yeah. It's been a while, but I think it really kind of sparked during the pandemic of just having more time and getting into conversations with people about who all these different writers were and just having time to explore all of those threads. Yeah, there was one image I had in my mind while reading this book, and it's because I've been to Recoleta Cemetery in Buenos Aires, where Ocampo and many of her family members are buried. It's like a very storied cemetery where like the wealthy, the greats are buried. So of course, the, the Ocampos are well represented there. And um, across the street a little ways, there's like a classic cafe there. And as is often the case in Buenos Aires, like they really like to show off their literary heritage. And they have this table with Borges and Casares, like these wax figures of them sitting there, like writing and drinking coffee. And you think, well, where's where's Silvina Ocampo? She's like a ghost at that table. And so I could kind of just see her. And, and that's so interesting that she was interested in those kinds of phantoms in her own writing before her, her legacy was cemented. She was already almost like writing that experience in real time, which I found fascinating. And I think it's interesting with her too, because I don't think she, you know, she's not one that seeked out the limelight. I think her sister was much more social and was very active and stuff in that scene where I think Sylvina, from what I've read, really, she made some comment about how she really liked intimacy, but not socializing. And that she liked being, it seems like she liked being more in those quiet spaces. And even as a child, she, you know, she was the youngest um, in that family. And it sounds like she spent a lot of time on her own. And it feels like maybe that's where her imagination Mm -hmm. developed. And she took on, you know, all these ideas of these other worlds and other dimensions. And it's kind of interesting to think about like where all that sparked for her. Yes. Yes. And I got to say, reading this book, well, talking about it with Cassia, having lived in Argentina for a little bit, it was elevated for sure because of that. It was very fun to be able to like hear her talk about, oh, I went to this place that Ocampo just mentioned in the book and stuff. Yeah, I would love to do that trip. Buenos Aires is one of those places I haven't been yet. And so it's definitely high on the list. And I was thinking about you guys just reading this together too, because I feel like because there are so many stories as you're reading through it, it would be fun to have somebody there that was reading at the same pace. I mean, we had some of that on Twitter, but it's not the same as sitting side by side with somebody and being able to really talk about the stories as they're unfolding. Yeah, that's true. That's one of the best things to do about this podcast is getting to read books side by side together. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So transitioning to the cover art, the, the painting on the cover I really practice this, is Le Feuille Mots. I don't think I did that that well, though. (laughs) Uh, But it's painted by Remedios Varro in 1956. The painting depicts, and I'm going to try to describe this the best I can. Listeners might need to just go check the painting out for themselves because it's kind of wacky. But the painting depicts a woman holding a blue thread that seems to be creating a human-like creature with an endless hallway for a stomach in a large, lavish room. On the ground is grass and orange leaves that seem to look like a a carpet at first, but on closer glance is actually like nature impeding into the room. The woman has red hair uh, and a green dress, and out of the hallway chest cavity comes one red bird and one white bird. And I'm specifically mentioning those because the rest of the image is in black and white. So those colors do really stand out when you first look at it. Kim, how do you interpret this painting? Well... I love this painting. I think it's a perfect cover for this book. I actually felt like the blue thread is coming out of the figure. Oh, yeah. That she's that she's winding it because it looks like she's kind of pulling it around and winding it. I think the color in the in the photo is beautiful. And, you know, Silvino Ocampo had a background in painting and art. And I read a comment by her in something at some point that she really immersed herself in colors and 
I feel like the color that pops out of this painting is is really beautiful and vivid. And I feel, and the women's eyes, they're, I saw them described as calm, but to me, they're kind of seeing, like it feels like she's looking into another dimension or seeing something yes. beyond. And um, and I love the, the doorway and his chest is like a labyrinth and it feels very... It feels like something you can get lost in and and easily lose your way. And I feel like that's a good analogy for her stories <laughs> as far as yeah. that you can really lose your way sometimes in her stories. So I, I love this painting. Yeah, I think it was a great fit as well. And it, it made me think of the um, her author's note at the beginning where she kind of writes about her ways of thinking about writing and how, where her stories come from and what she gets out of it. And I kind of saw the, the female figure as Ocampo, like holding the thread, like maybe like as a, as a creative person, maybe you don't know if you're the creator or the created, you know, and there was this like interplay between that, that I kind of was reading as it was about imagination for sure. Yeah. I like that. Following on that, the f- the final sentence actually of the author's introduction is, will we always be students of ourselves? And so you could see this as someone creating something else and which one are we? Are we both? Are we neither? So one of the things, and we've already kind of mentioned it, that I really loved about this edition is that it includes so much extra material. So there's an introduction by Helen Oyemi, who seems like probably the most perfect person having read her work. It has a lot of similarities, I think, to Ocampo, even similar, like the exact motifs that she's interested in. And then this preface by Borges, who gives a good like context for the scene that Ocampo is coming out of and responding to, but also influencing herself. And then this author's introduction, which is like feels extra essential to me, for some reason, because these stories, some of them are so inscrutable that it was like a useful key to understand how she thinks about her work. And then this, the translator's note at the end, which gave us insight into how the collection came together. So in that note, Daniel Balderston says that while working on this book, Ocampo insisted on selecting her cruelest stories. And sure enough, these stories do feature tragic deaths, poisonings, a blinding, suicidal romance, and more. How did you think that cruelty helped Ocampo achieve what she wanted to as a writer? I think it's interesting because when I first, I, I actually read the translator's note before mm. I, I read it up front. And I kind of wish it had been placed up front in the book because I think it frames the stories in an interesting way. And so I was glad I knew that kind of going into it. But it makes you wonder, you know, when you first read that she was denied Argentina's literary prize because of her stories being too cruel, you think, well, what is that? What does too cruel mean? And reading her stories, her cruelty is kind of of a, I mean, it's definitely cruel, but it's of a very childlike, naive quality almost. It's cruelty you would know about from an adult perspective, but seen, I feel like in a very, from a very naive or childlike perspective. And I think that there's, it's an interesting blend with her stories because her stories are very, there's whimsy in the stories along with this cruelty. And so the it makes the cruelty even more startling sometimes mm. because you're in this world of dolls and magic and superstitions and and then all of a sudden, something really kind of horrible <laughs> happens, and it's a little shocking. And I don't know, it's there. There's stories like I've never have read before by any other author. There's just a there's a blending of ingredients in them that is just really unusual. Yeah. And I had read. I love this quote from her. She says, it is painful to finish something. Why mark it like Beethoven, who wastes five full minutes on final chords? This whole oeuvre is impregnated with that final concern. I don't like conventions that a novel need have an ending, for example. And I think that is also a piece of that cruelty. You'll be reading a story and these cruel things happen and then they just kind of, they end. They don't... They don't give you a nice, neat bow <laughs> wrapped around everything. Yeah. 
And so the cruelty just stands on its own sometimes at the at the end of a story. And it's an interesting way of ending stories. Yeah. And I think that since we're thinking about women's writing specifically in this episode, it's like there is so much violence in canonical literature. And I guess we don't use the word cruelty, but they're about like, it's how we frame violence, whether it's like noble or it's or it's weird or it's acceptable or not, right? Because it's like, because it's about like a cute little girl or there's a doll or there's some like religious imagery, her cruelty is like, it's received by the literary establishment of Argentina at the time as, as being too out there to be like accepted or awarded. And I didn't, act, I, like, I don't actually think that anything that happens in this book is more cruel than other things, but it was just interesting that that's the way that it was, it was interpreted and that she also chose to reclaim it and be like, I only want to choose like those ones. Cause those are the part of me yeah. that, that people said no to. It's wonderful. Yeah. I do think that's interesting that she was part of the selection process. And I know he added more stories in this edition than they had chosen initially. And I started thinking, I think we all kind of talked about this a little bit while we were reading it to uh, being like lost in this haze a little bit of, I feel like maybe some of the stories started blending together a little bit for me in a way that I was almost in hindsight, like as I think back on some of the stories, it's almost like I've created my own version of some of the stories by blending ingredients and stuff, which I feel like she would approve of. Following on that, we did want to kind of ask, what do you think is the best way to read a short story collection? Uh, Usually I encounter them as either an individual collection or a complete works of so-and-so. This book seemed to lie somewhere in between. And I I feel like when I read either of those, I read them differently. A, A very specific collection I feel like I can read through and each one is digestible. And complete works is more of a thing where I could come to it here and there and pick up a story and then leave it for a little bit. I don't have to read it cover to cover. How did that work for you in this way with this book, which is sort of a, a, in, a in a middle ground? I was glad that we were reading it in shorter sections. I actually think in hindsight, it would have even gone slower. I think I would have only done one or two stories a day because there were days that we read because the stories were so short some of them, um, Mm -hmm. that there were days that we read four stories. And I feel like it's harder just to sit with each one of those stories. I had to step away from stories in between to kind of process or digest that story a little bit before then I stepped into the next one. And I didn't feel that when I read her first collection, Forgotten Journey, Mm -hmm. because the stories, they are all different enough. I feel like it and thus were their faces. Because of that cruelty, because of the through line, I feel like there's maybe a lot more similarity in some of the stories Mm -hmm. than there was in the individual collections. And so I feel like because of the amount of stories and and how the collection was put together, I I would have only read one or two a day. But I'm but I am glad that we did at least read it slower and that we had the conversations in between. Gotcha. Yeah. I was really interested about how your experience of Forgotten Journey compared to the collection, because I did wonder kind of what what the book would have been like if it was two or three complete collections rather than this selection. I think it's really interesting, but it was like, it was hard to get through it at certain points because of uh, what you realize is that the length of the story has like almost nothing to do with the impact Uh, especially when there is so much like unexploded ordinance in that she leaves there. (laughs) It's like, cause she, like you said, she didn't like to um, belabor an ending. So there's like a lot of stuff that's left that, that I guess you, you as the reader kind of have to sort through outside of the framework of the story. Yeah. And because some of those endings are left, a lot of those endings are left unfinished to then start the next story immediately it it doesn't necessarily feel like you've you've come to a completion on the story before mm-hmm. and so i think that's why i felt that need to kind of step away for a little bit and then come back to it just so each story was its own story and and that i was able to kind of distinguish that between them and it's interesting too because in like in forgotten journey 
in this book, Strange Visit is the second story of the book and Forgotten Journey is the first story. And in the actual collection, Forgotten Journey, Strange Visit comes before Forgotten Journey. Oh. And it's always interesting wow. to me how, to me how they order collections of short stories. And both of those stories fall maybe in the middle or towards the end of the actual first collection. Interesting. And so it definitely is a different experience reading how she put these the smaller collections together versus how this how this collection was put together. Mm. So the book covers several decades of Ocampo's literary output and it's ordered chronologically. Although I hadn't didn't occur to me that within that chronology things may have been moved around. Mm -hmm. What themes did you see continuing throughout the stories? Did you see there was a discernible arc that we could follow as her work changed? I don't know. That's one of the questions I was actually going to ask you guys about the arc from the beginning to the end, because I was curious what you thought. I mean, the stories are all, they're definitely, you know, strange and hypnotic and she's wildly imaginative. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of poetry in her writing, which makes sense because she was a poet. They're very mystifying. I think I you I remember you describing the ending stories as very opaque. Mm. And so I I think, you know, you there's a lot of like childhood is definitely a theme that runs through most of the stories. Time and memory. Memory is yeah. often brought up and and it makes you think about like how we remember things and and how we distort our memories. Jealousy and entrapment seem to be common themes. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, there's like there's things that appear very frequently in her stories, like mirrors, the Virgin Mary is in many of the stories, soothsayers, mm-hmm. gardens, insects, horses, there's hooting owls in a few mm-hmm. stories. So she has these these common things that she keeps coming back to as well. Yeah. What I what intrigued me about it was like those specifics seem to stay the same and even the the deeper themes seem to stay the same but her approach to them differed and the impact that it left on me as we went forward. I mean the the earlier stories I felt were more conventional in that they had like an understandable beginning, middle and end even if they weren't in that order or we got the ending twice or something. I mean, they were, they were never conventional, (laughs) but like early on they were still more (laughs) conventional than and later they were deeper and darker. And she would seemed like she would just go into a well and just slowly continue down and down and down and down. I agree with that. Um, And you, you never necessarily got lifted, lifted back out. And I found that really fascinating because I feel like so many writers if there's a big break in their style, it's to do with a subject. Like suddenly they start writing historical fiction and then that's what they do. It's an external change. Whereas like her change was like internal, but because the specifics were were so similar, we keep seeing faces and mirrors and dolls and doubles that it like caused mm-hmm. me to, like I would almost have to read it several times and read it maybe in a different way, like read the actual collection to try to figure out like what was going on in this woman's creative brain. Yeah, there were several, as I was reading stories, there were several paragraphs that I would reread. I think a lot of times too, you would you would read something and you would be like, wait a second, you get to a sentence and it would just change, it would kind of change gears enough where you're like, wait a second, did I miss something? Yeah. Or And yeah. so you go back and reread and realize you didn't miss mm-hmm. anything. It just it just segued in a very <laughs> abrupt manner. <laughs> and so that was an, it was, and then I would go back and reread full stories as well. And, and that was the interesting thing too, is she's definitely an author to reread because at just even reading them consecutively back to back, I would get different things out of the stories. And so I think these would be interesting stories to come back to over the years too, to see how they change for you as a reader because, you know, they cover so many years of her life. I mean, it's the stories cover a time period of over 50 years. And so there's a lot of change. Like you said, there's a lot of changes that happen in those later stories. There's a lot more depth. And, and I feel like she's 
even maybe grappling with other questions and stuff too mm-hmm. in some of the right in some of her themes and the writing itself that I think would be interesting to read. Like I go back to Virginia Woolf every decade or so to see how it sits differently with me. And I feel like these stories would do the same thing. Yes, I would love to do that. Yeah. When we talk about maybe more of the earlier stories, I think there is one specifically that does stand out that is a defining part of her early career. And that's The Imposter, which is probably the longest story in the book, I'm pretty sure. It is about a a young man named Louis Maidiana, who is sent to a rural farmhouse to spy on a man named Armando Heredia. He's sort of a potentially insane horseman, and this one does feature a quote-unquote twist ending. Although I feel like a lot of hers will, you know, stab you in the back with a bit of a twist, but this one is 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 a big one. It does seem foundational for some of her themes. How did you react to that story, and then how did it like inform the rest of the way you viewed the collection after that? Did you did you happen to see the reveal coming as well? I saw it, but not until a little bit later in the story. And I think it's interesting. I think Cassia, you had brought up on one of the tweets the Borges story with a similar perspective. And I think I had said Cesaris's story, the invention of morale, I found some similarities in how the story ended. And so as I was reading it, I was one, I was thinking about Cesaris and and how their works might have worked off of each other. I'm not sure how, you know, that question, Dylan, as far as how it framed how I see the rest of the collection or how it prepared me for kind of what was to come. It definitely puts you in a tone of her writing, like just the mood that kind of goes along with her writing and and some of the themes. And I think what at the very beginning when he's on the train heading to the house and the things that he's, the conversations he's having and the things that he's noticing out the window of the train. And you can see a lot of kind of her themes and her perspective to come. So I thought that that part more than anything really kind of framed for me her vision of just how she sees the world and kind of what she writes about. And then as the story unfolds and like some of the darkness in the story and some of the paranoia that's happening, you can see some that darkness kind of moving into it. And that definitely, I guess, frames a lot of things in the rest of the collection because there's a lot of her stories that start on a little bit lighter note or they'll start with a kind of a zinger for sentence but then get lighter and then move to darker again. Mm. And so I think you could see that very, very much in the story of the imposter as far as like just moving in in and out of that that paranoia or that place where you knew something else was happening and you couldn't quite put the pieces together about what that was. Yeah. And I think it set up set me up well for two things that I really that really stood out to me in Ocampo's writing. And one was color and the descriptions of the yellow fields, the horses, the the barn. It it painted something incredibly visual to me. Yes. Um, which is why when I was reading I was like, I wish this was a movie. I could see a great movie out of The Imposter. But the other one was sort of this, there's usually a tension between two people in an Ocampo story, it seemed. And this seemed to sort of set up that idea of they're sort of friends, they're sort of enemies, and things will just get worse from here. And I think that set me up well in that respect for how I, whenever two characters I set up at the beginning of Ocampo story from then on, I was like, okay, well, th- this is just going to go poorly. And usually it did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like Lucretia Martel between sort of like mm-hmm. character relations and as well as like visual color, she would be really good at, at, at making an imposter movie. Absolutely. Can we get can we get Martel on that? Please? Yeah. Can you work on that? That would be fantastic. <laughs> I thought it was maybe the, one of the most successful stories, if not the most successful. It seemed like People who had read the collection before on Twitter, it was a standout for them. They say, oh, I love that short story. It's one of my favorites. And it made me wonder what it would have looked like if she wrote some longer stories or she had stuck with some of these ideas a little bit longer. And I know I haven't read The Promise. I picked it up recently, but you have. Is that 
more in the vein of the imposter or because I know that she revisited it later in her life. It was something she worked on for a long time. So I was just kind of wondering if that fit more into the early model or the late model of her writing. I would, yeah, I would say that you see definitely some of the same themes and that, I mean, definitely as you read The Promise, it is, you can identify it as, as her writing. Like you, after reading anything else of hers, you couldn't mistake that. There's definitely, you know, what we see in the later stories and that's where their faces, you get a little bit more of in The Promise, I think a little bit more of that depth mm-hmm. and life experience, maybe. She did work on The Promise sporadically, I think over a 25 year period. So it definitely evolved over time. And there's a lot of themes in it that I feel like maybe she was thinking about towards the end of her life. Mm -hmm. But the general components are definitely there and the strangeness is there. And I agree, I think with the imposter, and I felt this way with the promise, it's it's lovely to spend more time in a story with her mm-hmm. because of because of how, you know, to your point, Dylan, about how painterly she is how in her writing, it really, she paints these beautiful pictures about place and color and sounds and smells. And I just feel like it's very visceral as you're as you're reading her descriptions. And I feel like you're we benefit as a reader by having more pages Mm -hmm. in that same story to just live in with her for a period of time. Yeah. And I did wonder what, if it, if it would have been better to have a build up to it, like if that story came closer to the end and we could have like built to it, obviously she wrote it earlier on. So it makes sense the way they ordered it, but I would almost like to like have my own little pass at creating like my own personal playlist version of the collection (laughs) and reading through it that way and seeing how it felt. Yeah, I wish more of her short story collections because I think The Promise or Forgotten Journey right now is the only full collection that's been translated into English. But it would be interesting to read some of her other collections as they were initial as they were originally published to see you know, what stories she puts together and, and how they evolve together versus having a theme of cruelty, which, mm-hmm. you know, pulls these stories together. Because there's definitely more, there's more variety in Forgotten Journey as they, sure. they still they still have the same themes and her writing style is still similar, but there's just a lot more variety in the stories. And so it makes for an interesting collection that way. I'm definitely going to have to find a copy of Forgotten Journey and read that because I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you would, you'll like both. I think both of them and they're by different, they're translated by Suzanne Jill Levine. And then she has a co-translator on each book. So the style I had posted a picture of like the first page of Forgotten Journey out of each book. And you can see how different the style is. And and I know Balderston talks a lot about her syntax being pretty wild and difficult to translate. And I think I've heard Suzanne Jill Levine talk about that too. Mm. And um and so it it makes me wonder because the translations are just so different, like how differently it's read by different people. Yeah. For sure. So in writing about The House Made of Sugar, critic Cynthia Duncan wrote that Ocampo's female characters, like uh, Christina, are not radical outspoken feminists. They do not overtly criticize their husbands, nor do they rebel in predictable ways. They go about their lives quietly and submissively until the fantastic intervenes to upset the traditional order that has been imposed on them. Did you see her work and its fantastic elements as a rebuke to conventional femininity? How did you see that playing out in in House of Sugar or in any of the stories? That's an excellent question. You know, it's interesting because she writes, a lot of these stories are written in first person perspective, and they're written both from male and female perspectives. And I thought there were certain stories, and now I can't remember the specific stories because I didn't really keep notes on that. But there were certain stories as I was reading that I thought felt more like they had a little bit more of a feminist slant. And then as I was reading other stories, I kept thinking about how I think kind of male centric her group of friends 
were, it seems like, about who all, you know, were hanging out and having these discussion, these literary discussions together. And I feel like she she lived a lot in kind of a man's literary world. And I don't know if that's true altogether, because I, I know she, you know, I know she had obviously had female friends and her sisters and stuff. But I feel like there's so many stories where I feel like she's really trying to get into a male perspective in writing the story. And so those ones were harder for me to kind of get a handle on like who she is as a person and what her, you know, what her stance is or what her perspective is on those Mm -hmm. things. So I'm not really sure. What did you think? I felt like the fantastic intervenes to upset the traditional order. It sometimes felt like the fantastic intervened more to make the traditional order more obvious. Not not that it was intervening on behalf of the women, but that it was almost intervening to make it super obvious how much violence these women were subject to or experienced. Like the the one about the doll, this girl foresees that she's going to receive a doll and then she kind of becomes the doll she's trapped like in this box which is nightmarish but it's so cutesy so it's that perfect blend of like every girl probably had a doll growing up but like the horror story of like yeah it's this normal object that has been like given this like incredible weight that could be you know seen as a metaphor for all sorts of things so I felt like there there wasn't one way that fantastical elements were coming in. This doesn't adhere to a pattern, I didn't feel like. I felt like it was she was she no, is right. slipping into different skins, whether it's like she's a, she's writing male characters, she's writing female characters, she's writing older characters, younger characters. She could inhabit a mirror, she could get really interested in a horse, like she was someone adept at slithering around through life and like and figuring out different perspectives which not every female writer does like sometimes they just kind of plant a flag and they're like I'm gonna write about women and that's what they do and it was interesting to me that she chose to not do that and part of it probably was you know the scene that she was coming from but it was also just clearly something like unique about her psychology and her creativity yeah, that's interesting because, you know, we are, I was talking earlier about there's several stories that deal with that theme of an entrapment. And I think about a lot of the women writers that I've read, and that same theme is dealt with in a lot of different ways by a lot of different women because of of feeling like trapped in, in the the expectation of the gender. And she definitely takes that, like to your point about she's able to inhabit a, animals and people, a bunch of different perspectives. And, you know, maybe some of that is that we use our imagination sometimes to take ourselves to new places that we want to escape from in a way the space mm-hmm. that we're currently in. And I feel like her imagination maybe and from the start from childhood really has just been able to allow her to take on different perspectives and be in different spaces that she wasn't able to necessarily be otherwise. And she came from this a very affluent family and always had, it seems like this um, interest in the other and not necessarily being part of that class of like wanting to live among the different classes and understand what these different experiences were like. And she just seems to write her way into that to, to be able to explore those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dylan, what did you think? Well, I was joking with Cassia that I would just come onto this question and be like, well, let me tell you guys what I think about women's <laughs> writing and feminism and stuff. <laughs> but I, I definitely saw a lot of like overlapping ideas that you guys already discussed. I, I just thought this person made a really great point about how these women are almost called upon to just finally naturally almost take control of their situation rather than going out there and being like, I must do this. It just, I have to do this. It's just, and I, I especially love the the housemaid of sugar with just like this, we, we also described it as just like another imposter story where it's like this sort of, we are two people, we are one people and we are intruding on ourselves and we become anew. That that was definitely one that stood out for both of us as well. So I'm glad that we got to read a little bit of the article on it. And we'll definitely make sure to tag it in the show notes. 
Yeah, that was definitely one of my favorite stories. And I that's one that I went at, back and reread again. Mm-hmm. And it even felt richer the second time of like the perspective of her husband. And you see the themes like when we were talking about the paranoia a little bit and the imposter and how that kind of builds. And you see that same building in the husband over the course of the story of The House Made of Sugar. Also having that we talked about Ocampo quite often, I think even more than I expected, does subject her stories around the men. That's another one where the woman is really the one that sort of transforms, but we are stuck in this almost blind and helpless man to this woman that finally is gaining her her own realization. Yeah. So it's an interesting way to a, a approach it. We did make sure to reach out and ask you what some of your favorite stories were. And so we would kind of want to do a little bit of a grab bag of some of the ones that we haven't talked about explicitly yet. What What is one that you particularly enjoyed that's kind of fresh in your mind at the moment? As I was thinking yesterday about the stories that have really stood with me, um, the clock house keeps coming back to me. Yeah. And we loved that one. I think that one was just so unexpected to me. I did not see where that was going. And I love that it's written in the format of a letter to her teacher. Yes. With this very childlike innocence. And yet you see this horrific event unfolding. And she just does not see it through the same eyes that we see it through as a reader. She sees it through a very innocent perspective. Yeah, there was a few that had sort of a narrative, I don't want to say gimmick, but like um, thing to them where that one's a letter. There's another one that the whole story is built around a prayer. And then there's another one where we are basically reading a story about a woman's life and it gets to the end and we realize that the end of the woman's life is her finding someone that will write the story of her life and the story sort of starts again. And so there was a few times where she did do this thing of like, I'm going to tell a story in a very specific way that's not uh, just a, a straight narrative or piece of writing. She played with form. Definitely. Yeah, she played. Yeah. that's what I was looking for. She definitely played with form. And I think out of all of the ones that really played with the kind of form, the clockhouse was the one that was the most successful to me. Like you said, I was not expecting how the sort of fantastical element would come in to that story at all. It was like, wow. Yeah. The other one that I really liked was Mimosa. Yes. And it's interesting because The House Made of Sugar, The Clock House, and Mimosa are all from the same collection, which is the collection of the Fury. Mm -hmm. And I thought Mimosa was, it starts out so whimsical that she's having her, her dog What's the taxidermy? (laughs) And then where that story goes is was completely unexpected to me as well. I know. Yeah, it's kind of sweet, but strange. Very strange. Yeah. And you think that's sort of where it's going. And then it's like, let me just push this time step. We're going to keep going with it. Well, and I think that's the other thing, too, about knowing that cruelty ties all these stories together. And maybe that's why the translator's note was put at the end. Yeah. Because you always know, even when the cruelty hasn't happened in a story yet, you know something is coming. Yeah. And so I, I found that, that knowing that ahead of time probably also changed how I read some of the stories because there were a few times where you get further into the story before the cruelty shows itself. Yeah, and the the mm-hmm. tone with which the cruelty comes out is so different because some feel very somber and you kind of are me- meditating on what's taken place. And then in one like Mimoso, it's so kind of funny and you kind of feel the narrators like rubbing their hands together and being like, yeah, we did it. <laughs> and so she was fascinated like with the different ways that I guess cruelty can be carried out. Or whether we we perpetrate it or we're victims of it, again, it's just like the the multitude of angles that she was able to come at stories from took us on a wild adventure. Absolutely, throughout these decades of her writing, thus were their faces. I think what was was a favorite of yours is also that serves as the title of the book. Why did you think that was that story was chosen? to be the title. I think an earlier, maybe the Canadian version of this collection was called Leopoldina's Dreams, which is another oh, interesting story title. Yeah. Do you think it was the right one? 
I think it was. I like where I I like that the title story falls kind of in the middle of the collection, which is we talked about the collection is put together in the order it was initially published. So I like that the book did not lead with that or end with that, that we that where we come across it, I think is an interesting choice. And then the story itself, these 40 children who essentially look and act the same. I don't know if I feel like from the story itself, if it represents the rest of the collection, I think it's, Mm. I think it's a good title story for the collection, but I don't know that I feel like it's actually representative of the whole. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, it starts with this epigraph from Ezekiel. So the quote, it's like a biblical quote. And I did think religion and religious ephemera Mm -hmm. and belief uh, played into these stories a lot. And she comes from a Catholic country. And I'm sure that that like informs her worldview in all kinds of ways that I couldn't even begin to understand. And Ezekiel does feel like something that like Silvino Campo could have like translated or, or created a story around. Like that is one of the freakiest books of the Bible. And she's very, this whole like collection's very Old Testament. So like thinking of it in that way, I was kind of like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And also the idea of, of faces and of a multitude of, of faces because a face can kind of, you know, it can reveal or it can deceive. Mm. And that is definitely something she was interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. I think that is interesting about when you were talking about all the different perspectives that she can write from, those are different, all the different faces that she's writing from. And, but it's interesting that this story, those faces are all the same faces. Yeah. And, the likenesses they're you know they they write they act they draw they do everything the same way and there's like not a differentiation between the 40 children and then they are either victims of a horrible tragedy or or they're blessed by a miracle we're not really sure like it's so unsettling the ending to that story it is very unsettling yeah. i choose to believe it's a miracle <laughs> no no okay. but again it's like that makes us think about our own relationship to belief is like, is it a miracle or is it the worst thing that's ever happened to like the parents of these kids? I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's um, and it's interesting too, because the way that you see it is that, that vision, like if you think of her painting two different paintings, those are very, very different paintings and moods, right? Like one is very mm-hmm. magical and, feels kind of beautiful and the other one feels absolutely horrific and dark and dreadful. Yeah. Were there were there any others you wanted to definitely talk about? The other one that I the other story that I really liked was Men Animals Vines. Yeah. Um it yes. it felt really I was it felt very immersive to me. I felt like I was being tangled by the vines as yep. I was reading it. Mm-hmm. And I loved that <laughs> feeling as a, just as a reader, I just, I was like, I found myself sinking into my chair more as I was reading mm-hmm. it. And I love the setting of the jungle and the mental journey that the character goes through during the story. And I don't think it was a, it's, it's not a very long story. I think it's like six or seven pages so either, or something yeah. maybe. And, but I feel like there's so much that happens in those six or seven pages. Yeah. What did you think of the story? That was another one where I, I felt color coming in really strongly because I could Absolutely. just see like that vine and I felt like that poor man being sucked up by it or or turning into it or transforming or being destroyed I'm not sure but just it it was one of those ones you just read with your shoulders like stuck up like "Ah." yeah how about you Dylan (laughs) I really like the ex expiation oh yeah that's another one that stood out for me um and I do think you mentioned that this weird like psychosexual relationship that sort of develops into some really violent chaos. And it's, it's got this weird almost call and response between what's real and what's not. 
and I, I, I did really enjoy that one. Yeah, there's a that story to me had a lot of kind of creepiness in it with the obsession mm-hmm. with the canaries and and the friend who's blinded. And I liked the the journey that you go on as a reader in that story because I felt kind of off kilter a little bit the whole entire time I was reading it, not knowing really what was happening or what was coming. Mm-hmm. And that that was one of those stories that I that I thought really like kind of twisted it the whole entire way through. Mm-hmm. That was one where Dylan and I had like back and forth about we had read it differently and we didn't like agree on what the nature of the relationship was between the wife and the friend of the husband. But it it's kind of open to interpretation. Like you don't know precisely like what sort of sin has been committed, but it was was it you who brought up kind of the relationship of this to Borges and him growing blind? Because it was um someone had made note of the fact that like Sylvina when would like take notes about when Borges would come over would kind of was fascinated with the process of going blind. And even in uh, Thus Were Their Faces, the children are deaf. So it was like the idea of um, being deprived of a sense could be a scary thing. Uh, and it seemed like something that she was interested in exploring. And I didn't know like how much of that came from her personal relationships. Yeah, I know it's hard to tell with so many of these stories. I feel like all of the stories, there's something in each story that feels like it's drawing from her relationships or her life. And I feel like she is such a sensual writer and and exploring like color mm. and sound and smell and feel and that it, it seems like that would be something that would be somewhat terrifying to her of losing mm-hmm. a sense. And like, and I feel like it's almost the things that she is terrified by maybe that she delves into to just to really explore more mm-hmm. because all of her stories also have an element of that to them as well. Yeah, for sure. Were there any stories that didn't, didn't quite work for you? Or that you were left wondering about? You know, I think the only story that really I was kind of fascinated by the story the book ends with, which is compassion. Passion. Yeah. And I'm curious what you guys, how do you feel about that as the ending story? And and what did you think of that story? Yeah, the the last two stories in particular, I felt like were the most difficult because she addresses sexual violence in a more direct way than she had previously. Yes. Yeah. And that was, I mean, it certainly fits the bill of cruelty, but the, the way it was handled, I didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. In, in Cornelia before the mirror prior to that one, mm-hmm. where there's just like, there's a lot of dialogue, which I would normally be like very into but but I was like, just I, it was it was deeply disturbing to me is what I would would say about those to those both of those stories and to end on it I kind of didn't know I couldn't c- kind of catch my breath yeah, yeah that's how I felt too I mean I, and it I guess because of when they were written and because of how the collection is put together chronologically it makes sense that those were the two I ended on it just felt like a very dark note yes to end on and um and they were and on both cases on the front page of both of those I wrote disturbing with a exclamation point (laughs) they just I didn't really know how to sit with them very much as you know closing stories of the book (laughs) They were one of the ones where like every consecutive sentence after the last just made me feel worse and worse and worse to the point where it was just like, okay, I don't know how much more of this I can take. But I, I did find Cornelia Before the Mirror one of the most fascinating in terms of its its structure mm-hmm. and its back and forth and how it developed. Yeah, it's a little bit longer. Yeah, it is, it is one of the longer ones. In thinking about this book specifically, or the numerous other books that you've organized group readings of, how do you think that discussing specifically women's writing online or writing online has changed your relationship to reading? What have you learned from maybe Ocampo or from others like her? I've been reading 
you know, mostly books by women for especially probably the last three years. And I've also been watching mostly films by women directors for probably the last couple years. And I was having a conversation the other day with a friend about the dialogue, the cultural dialogue and how different it is in books written by women and, and in films made by women. And, and not that it is better or worse at all, but that it's a piece of cultural history that I, that I haven't, they didn't have the the benefit, I guess, of reading as much of or hearing as much of when I was younger. And, and now I am, you know, in my early 50s. And it's interesting to me about how differently I think that I might have lived my life or things that I might have known earlier, if I had been reading or watching these things earlier. And I think as you know, Mm. at the age that I am right now, I have such an appreciation for that the things that women were struggling with in the 30s are similar issues to Mm. the discussions that we still have. And so it's, I just feel like it has expanded my own thought processes and empathy and understanding. I appreciated what you said about you felt like reading these books has given you insight into like how to live your life, basically, and you wish you'd had them sooner, like you would have known more. That's something really valuable that that books can give us and that like books that speak to like a more specific experience can give us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I had a, a little similar realization when we were doing Mary Olivier and we read that yes. that book, which is like, it's so, it's so up there with like Joyce or these other, you know, stream of consciousness types of writers, but like virtually unknown, unread, even among people who read such things. And, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, I've had access to, I've been a fan of Virago and all these different like specific women's presses. Let's go women, rah-rah women. <laughs> but even I myself will like diminish the value and the massive amount of difference that exists within that category. So like Silvina Ocampo, going into it, I kind of had like this idea in my head of what she might be like. And she completely, she conformed to some of my expectations, but then, you know, her stories just took me to a point where I did not at all anticipate going. Even though like some of the stories maybe didn't work for us 100%, I believe in her wisdom of her experience. I think it's a valuable like testament and piece of work as a whole. And I was grateful for the opportunity to read it and to read it with other people who were excited about it. It was really a great experience to read this book following, you know, starting with Forgotten Journey and The Promise, which are her first book and her last book. It was interesting to read a selection of things that came in between because there's there are a lot of stories in here that give you or gave me as a reader a lot more insight to her and I felt the same way I felt like even by reading those two other books this painted so much more of a picture of her for me and just her imagination I was just so struck by how imaginative she is and how you know, with this theme of cruelty, how many different places she could, she could take that. And even, you know, as we talk about, like, so many of the the same objects or themes Mm -hmm. find their way into each story, but every story is, is also very different. It, It, every story definitely stands on its own. And it was rewarding to read through the whole collection. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for for doing this and reading this book with us. We've been looking forward to it all year. We've been excited. Yeah, we set it up like before the turn of the year when you announced because we were like, we have to do at least one. Yeah, you had reached out right away and that was perfect. And I think this was a really good one. You know, short stories can be difficult to talk about, especially a collection of 42 of them. I would suggest just picking it up and reading one story at a time and working your way through it slowly. And, and I think you'll, you'll really be rewarded with her writing. Yeah. And we're definitely going to link to your 
chart where you show all the books that you have coming up? Because I know that we have some listeners who are not like online, but they might be excited about the idea of reading along with this sort of thing. There's definitely been some people that there were a couple people that reached out to me and just see if they could message me independently about stories and stuff too. So I've been having some other dialogues with people. But if anybody wants to reach out and discuss any of these books, I am more than happy to. It's been really fun to hear what other people's experiences with them have been. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Unburied Books or send us an email at unburiedbooks at gmail.com. Bye!